This podcast may contain disturbing themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. In many parts of the United States, or any town in Latin America, just ask any town local, especially those close to a river, about the story of La Llorona, and they will most likely know of this tragic tale. In fact, they might even say that they know that La Llorona has been sighted nearby on Halloween nights, or Dia de los Muertos, known as the Day of the Dead, which is a three-day event in Mexican culture that starts on the 31st of October to the 2nd of November. And they would, in some cases, claim that the origin of the legend of La Llorona came from the town they live in, in the very river that flows through it. There are many variations of this story, but the one I am about to tell is the most common one told throughout the ages and generations. No one really knows when the story of the vengeful spirit of La Llorona, also known as the Weeping Lady, or sometimes the Wailing Woman, came to be. But the earliest accounts are traced back to the year 1550 in Mexico City. It tells about a very beautiful but poor woman named Maria. She was so ambitious that she never accepted the love or marriage offers of her many, many suitors. She kept telling her abuela, or grandmother, that she would not just accept just any man. Maria would only say yes to someone who was more handsome than anyone in their village and with more money and property than anyone can imagine. It was a high bar indeed. But one day, a wealthy and handsome man from another town was passing by the village on his horse. Hearing the sound of singing, he followed where the beautiful voice came from. And there, close to the river, was Maria, who was on her way to the village market through a path along the river. Like most fairy tales, it was love at first sight, and the two were wed not long after. For a time, the couple were happy, and Maria gave birth to two children. Her husband loved the children so much, so much so that it was apparent that he loved them more than Maria herself. This made her very jealous, but she loved her children just as much. So a time came when her husband would travel back to his hometown, leaving Maria and their children alone at their home for days, only to come back occasionally to bring gifts to his children while ignoring her. This enraged Maria, and the fires of jealousy between her husband and her children grew even hotter. One day, with her husband away on his many travels to his hometown, Maria and her two children were walking along the road by the river that led to the village market. A carriage was approaching them and stopped just next to Maria and her children. They were surprised to see the children's father getting off the carriage and doting on the kids. He gave them the usual presents every time he went back. 
However, he wasn't really coming back. He was just passing by to give his children their gifts. Sitting next to him on the carriage was a beautiful woman, and by the looks of her, was not a peasant like Maria. The man went back to the carriage, and they both drove away, leaving Maria and the two kids on the side of the dusty road. Blinded with anger and jealousy, Maria took her children down the river, telling them that since the afternoon was quite hot, a nice swim would cool them off. When all three were at the deepest part of the river, Maria held the children's heads under the waters until they were completely still. Swimming back to shallower waters, Maria's hysteria wore off. Realizing what she had done, she searched for her children downstream, calling out their names over and over for hours until sunset. Never going back home, never stopping, she called out their names, wailing incessantly. The heartbroken woman never stopped searching by the riverbank until one day, having never eaten nor rested for days, collapsed and died by the stony shores of the river. Since then, it is said that her vengeful spirit would be seen by the river crying out for her lost children. It is also said that if Maria or La Llorona would see any stray children in her path, she would take them into her arms, never to be seen again. They say that during the days of Dia de los Muertos, or the Day of the Dead, La Llorona would roam outside the confines of the riverbank into dark, lonely streets, searching for children she would call her own. It is indeed a traditional tale that parents would tell their children about the dangers of staying out at night. One evening in October of 2021, in the Mexican municipality of Naucalpan de Juarez, frightened neighbors could hear the shrieks of a woman in a veil, wearing white, wailing for her lost children. In the darkness, they could just about see the horrifying ghostly figure of what is unmistakably the specter of La Llorona. Several neighbors were even able to capture a video of the frightful image on their phones. With the rising fear and panic overcoming the village, one frightened homeowner, knowing that bullets won't even matter to a ghost, fired several shots at the apparition, hoping to scare it away. But instead, the veiled woman dropped to the ground. Onlookers then slowly approached the figure minutes later, only to find out that it was the dead body of an unnamed 24-year-old woman wearing a La Llorona costume, trying to prank the neighbors. 
The shooter fled and was soon apprehended, but police later reported that no charges were filed. And this could be the first official account of La Llorona claiming her victim in a matter of speaking. And this is the Podcast of Strange, Episode 2, Tricks. Everybody loves a good story. And once in a while, we are more drawn to the ones that, well, sounds too incredible, too bizarre, too scary or too strange to be real. The kind that can only come from the imagination of a good storyteller. Or someone's twisted mind, perhaps. But sometimes, what makes these unbelievable tales a much more compelling listen is when they are based on events that are actually true. This is the Podcast of Strange, and I'm Antonio, your storyteller. Halloween Eve. The one night of the year when you hear a familiar knock on your door, where kids in costumes of their favorite hero or horror anxiously wait for your literally sweet offerings. While such practice of offerings to strangers during All Hallows Eve dates back to hundreds of years, the term and the now popular practice of trick-or-treating actually started in the 1930s, which is relatively recent when you consider the history of, uh, well, history. But it was really not that much different in England back in the mid-1800s. Back then, during All Hallows' Eve, the Celtic tradition of geising, where children go door-to-door in, you guessed it, disguise, as benevolent spirits would offer prayers, songs, or other kinds of performances in exchange for food, money, or wine. I'm guessing the wine they receive are given to their parents. Maybe. And in some occasions, the patrons would offer the kids their traditional soul cakes, which is a sweet cookie with a cross pattern and is seasoned with ginger, nutmeg, and cinnamon. But soul cakes were usually given to poor people who would also knock on a patron's doorstep a tradition called souling, offering songs of prayers on that same evening. Very much like, yeah, Christmas caroling. But that's for another episode. Now, the ancient practice of geising, where the children are dressed like friendly spirits, is thought to have come from the belief that if the children were to wander the dark streets, disguise the spirits, the real spirits were often malicious and evil, would hopefully ignore the kids and pass them by, leaving them safe. And by the mid-1800s, the offering of sweets were becoming more popular, and that attracted more children wandering the evening Halloween streets of England. In 
1858, around two weeks before Halloween, in the English city of Bradford, Joseph Neal, a wholesaler of everything confection, sent one of his lodger, a man named James Archer, to buy more plaster of Paris to be used by his confection maker in order to make the next batch of sweets for the coming week. Usually, it was Neil himself who would personally go to the chemist, also known as a pharmacist, to pick up the bag of the white powdery substance himself. But he sent James Archer, who regularly does some errands for his landlord, for today's pickup. Plaster of Paris is the main bulking filler ingredient that keeps the candy's shape and volume. Yes, I can hear you at the back. You're asking why use plaster puree when adding more sugar does essentially the same thing. You see, during those times, sugar was very, very expensive. Think of it this way. That standard four-pound bag of sugar you buy at your local grocery store, that costs around, what, $2.50? Back then... That same amount of sugar costs almost $50. Yikes. So, Plaster of Paris was a popular ingredient as a bulk filler, or adulterant, used in many of the sweets back then. That makes them cheaper to produce. Now back to our story. Neil's lodger, James Archer, was sent to procure 12 pounds of Plaster of Paris. And oh, by the way, Placer Paris was also called Daft. Yes, Daft. D-A-F-T. So James headed off to the shop of Charles Hudson in Shipley. Mr. Hudson is a chemist. But as it came to be, Mr. Hudson was ill in bed in his upstairs flat that morning. So his rather inexperienced apprentice... William Goddard was the only staff when James arrived. The poorly Hodgson would bark instructions to his assistant whenever absolutely needed. William, only being in the chemist's employ for just less than a month, was in effect in charge of the shop. The inexperienced William Goddard didn't know which container the white powdered daft was located in the back stores, and the poorly Charles Hodgson, whose living quarters was in the upstairs of his shop, was reluctant to allow his apprentice to dispense and complete this rather large order, especially since they were stored in one of the many casks at the back of the shop. It was likely that Mr. Hodgson told his assistant to ask the buyer to come back another day when he is up and well. However, James was unwilling to leave empty-handed and was adamant that he should have his daft before he leaves. So the reluctant Charles Hudson told Goddard where to get the daft in the back stores. So Goddard scooped around 12 pounds of the white powder in a container, bagged it, and gave it to Joseph Neal's assistant. Hours later, James Appleton, 
the sweetmaker working for Joseph Neal, received a package of death from James Archer, using the entire 12-pound contents to make 40 pounds of a sweet peppermint lozenges mixture. Later, after completing the batch, Appleton began feeling sick and started vomiting. Thinking it was a stomach flu, he went home, where he recovered a few hours later. The batch of lozenges, a black and white striped kind of peppermint candy, arrived at Joseph Neal's wholesale shop a few days later. After two weeks, on the 30th of October, William Hardacre was setting up shop earlier than usual at Green Market in Bradford. He was expecting quite the profit today, as it was both near the end of the month and a payday for many of the local workers. William, popularly known as Humbug Billy, is known for his stall being the best place to get the popular Humbug Sweets at very reasonable prices. Hardacre noticed that there was something different in this batch of humbugs. The recognizable black and white stripes of this beloved peppermint candy was a bit off-color, especially on the white parts, and it had a different texture one would expect on a candy of this sort. Customers may not find it as visually tempting as the regular ones that he usually have. Being the resourceful entrepreneur that he is, he lured his customers with big discounts that as soon as he opened shop, there was already a queue of factory workers waiting for their turn to get their hands on that popular hard candy peppermint lozenges. But unknown to Hardacre, he has become an unintentional agent who completed the tragic chain of events that by the end of All Hallows' Eve, 20 people will be dead, 13 of them children, and more than 200 others who will suffer for a long time, some for the rest of their lives. It is often said that a tragedy that was caused by a series of unfortunate events would not have happened if even just one of those events may have happened differently. The Bradford Sweets poisoning deaths may not have happened if Joseph Neal went to the chemist instead of his lodger, James Archer. As a seasoned confectioner himself and a regular customer of Mr. Hodson, he would most likely have known which container Mr. Charles Hudson stored the daft. He may have even caught the fact that the white powdery substance may not have been the Placer Paris, since, as a wholesaler, he checks his raw materials scrupulously to make sure he gets his money's worth. The Bradford Sweets poisoning deaths may not have happened if Charles Hodgson wasn't poorly that day and handled everything like clockwork in his shop when James Archer arrived. He would have known where the Placer Paris was stored and in which barrel at his back store corner. 
The Bradford Suite's poisoning deaths may not have happened if the inexperienced William Goddard knew which corner contained the barrel of death when his boss, the poorly Mr. Hodgson, said that the plaster Paris was in the cask in the corner. The Bradford Suite's poisoning deaths may not have happened if the seasoned confectioner, James Appleton, noticed that the fine texture of the powder was slightly different from the regular death and how it cast a slightly different color when mixed with the other ingredients. He might have discovered that it was not daft at all, no pun intended. And finally, the Bradford's sweet poisoning deaths may not have happened if William Hardacre, who obviously noticed the quality, the coloring, and the hardness of the sweets being off, even slightly, should have refused the batch from the wholesaler right from the start. Remember, the reason why he discounted the sweets in the first place is that it was not up to Humbug Billy's usual standards. If any one of these separate events may have happened differently, none of the white powder used in the making of those peppermint lozenges would have gotten into the hands of over 200 people by All Hallows' Eve. The white powder that William Goddard has mistakenly sold to James Archer that ended up in the hands of confection maker James Appleton, who turned it into peppermint lozenges or humbugs that was sold by Humbug Bill at his stall to many customers was, in reality, arsenic. Yes, arsenic. Rat poison arsenic. It was reported that each of those humbug sweets was enough to kill a grown man twice over. And what's worse is that Humbug Billy peddled a lot of those sweets on the day before All Hallows' Eve, and by the next evening, those candies were in the hands of quite a number of geising kids and solding adults. Charges were brought against Goddard, Hudson, and Neal for manslaughter, but they were soon acquitted. The prosecution could not find any direct laws, including negligence, to be broken at the time. And this is one case where the treat is also a deadly trick. A Haunted Hayride is a popular Halloween attraction in the US, Canada, and some parts here in the UK, where you usually ride a tractor-driven hay wagon and take a slow and scary trip into a haunted forest or farm. Now imagine yourself back in 2001, Halloween Eve, where you go into such a hayride at a farm somewhere in Michigan. Imagine sitting on such a wagon 
with straws of hay littered all over the wooden floor, along with almost a dozen others sitting with you, ready to take the scary trip into the spooky unknown of the haunted woods just next to the farm. There's a big sign at the entrance where it says that you enter these woods at your own risk. You hear some of the teens with you in the wagon make mocking ghost sounds and laughing before being shushed to silence by the other passengers. As the wagon slowly progressed deeper into the haunted woods, you see jack-o'-lanterns littered all over the leaf-coated ground and you see the shadows of figures from afar walking steadily towards you. You're not afraid, only amused. You then see skeletons hanging by their necks on a noose, the rope tied to a branch of a tree, motionless. You can't help but smile at the sight. After all, this is something you always expected to see. Suddenly, from behind a tree next to you, as your part of the wagon passes it, a person wearing a spooky ghoul costume jumps right at you. So close, you can almost see the eyes behind the dark mask. You jump and let out a short yelp, going back to your seat, smiling, and letting out a relieved laugh. You're not afraid, just startled. As you go deeper, you notice thick cobwebs on the branches and more skeletons hanging on nooses. And next to the jack-o'-lanterns are skulls as well, littered all over the ground. You see more ghosts and ghouls and zombies, either walking about or jumping and startling the other passengers. And this time, you pass a coffin where somebody inside jumped out with a loud boo at you and the participants, only to be booed back by the passengers and greeted with more laughter. You hear laughter and nervous expectations from the others, wondering which tree will the next scare come from this time. Then, the tractor driver slows down, as if on cue, and points to the part of the woods where three witches dance around a cauldron, chanting their spooky spells and occasionally point their knobby hands at the wagon, seemingly casting a curse, purchasing another smile on your face. You're not afraid, only entertained. You finally see a clearing where your wagon is headed and you know that you are almost at the end of your ride. Like the scene with the three witches, the driver slows down to let the passengers get a clear view on what looked like the climax of the whole attraction. Like the other countess skeletons hanging on the noose earlier, this one was different. It wasn't a skeleton, but a human figure, a young boy flailing wildly with one hand on the noose and the other hand seemingly pointing at your group. You can hear his labored gasps and choking grunts 
as if his eyes and gaping mouth were trying to say something. Then, his struggling went still. As he went limp, and although his feet were actually touching the ground, you knew it was an act, albeit a very disturbing and realistic one. The passengers let out sounds of amusement and the usual surprised expletives. You're not afraid, only curious and a bit disturbed. Then, the driver stopped the tractor and jumped off to run towards the limp boy. And soon as he reached the motionless figure, he screamed for help. The employees and the costume workers ran to the driver's direction, and some of the passengers leapt out to help. It turned out that what you saw was not an act, but the last throws and struggles of a kid as he was dying while hanging on a noose. You sat there, watching in shocked silence, while the people around the boy was helplessly and fruitlessly trying to save his life. just witnessed is the death of a 14-year-old boy named Caleb Reb. Reb was a volunteer at the Haunted Hayride in Alpine Ridge Farm in Sparta, Michigan. Initially, the organizers turned him down, saying that they already had enough employees working at the event. But the insistent young man said he would volunteer instead without pay as long as he is part of the team running the hunted hayride. He was assigned at a post, manning one of the coffins. All he had to do was jump out of it and shout, Boo! He was not happy with such simple tasks, so he asked to swap with one of the staff, who was manning the skeleton on a noose just close to the end of the ride. The staff was supposed to swing the skeleton close to the participants for a good final scare, but Caleb had other plans for it. He figured that he himself would take the place of the skeleton by securing the noose around his neck just before the wagon passes him by. It would be the best scare yet. Since the noose was close to the ground, he reckoned that his weight while hanging on the rope around his neck would still keep his feet on the ground. But little did he know that his weight was not enough to bend the branch for him to control his dangerous stunt. So he let the noose hang around his neck as the hayride was approaching but the branch was strong enough to lift him, and he was in fact painfully struggling to get himself loose while the others watched him die in agony. 
At first, the spectators and staff thought it was an act, since the tip of his feet was touching the ground. But it really was not low enough for Caleb to lift his whole weight and avoid being choked. And by the time they noticed that it really was not an act, it was already too late. The young lad died on the spot. Sometimes, people would go to great lengths for a good scare worth remembering. A scare so intense, it's literally to die for. And this is the Podcast of Strange. On the next episode, what would you do if you had more than a thousand people living in you? Episode 3, I am Legion. If you like this podcast and would like to hear more, I would really appreciate it if you subscribe and give a high rating and review. This would not only support the creation of more episodes, but it will help spread the word to other listeners. I originally intended to publish this episode on Halloween, but a very painful leg injury threw a wrench at that plan. No worries, I'm recovering quite well, and I'm working real hard on the next episode. I hope to publish it in time for next week and get a little better at doing this podcast thingy. Check the show notes on this podcast Facebook links, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, thank you so much for listening.